We are studying Colossians, and if you, if you are visiting, this is a letter in the New Testament. It's a, a book of the New Testament or a letter written by the Apostle Paul. So we're picking up, we're about halfway through. So Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, and you can, you can follow in the bulletin the, the text I'll be using. You probably heard this in the, in the reminders of the announcements, but we have a Wednesday morning Bible study. We have an earlier one for men that meets in the lobby, and then a later uh, Wednesday women's study here in the, in the sanctuary. But this past Wednesday, we had a study, and it starts at 7, so you know, folks start coming maybe about a quarter till. And I got here, Jonathan Davis, another one of our pastors, he teaches it, and he had picked up bagels for the guys to eat when we came in. So we came in, and we were helping set up, and we noticed that the bagels were not sliced. So first world problems, the bagels are not sliced. But they are easier to eat when they're sliced. So uh, we, we looked around, and we kind of have a little, you know, a little pseudo-kitcheny area out there, but we didn't really have something good to slice the bagels. And uh, three of us have offices in the building next door. You may or may not know that. But there's, a, there's like a break room kitchenette over there, and I thought, there may be a better knife over there. Let me go check. Ran over there, found a great knife, serrated, big, you know, big knife, cleaned it up, and came walking out. So it's about 10 till 7 in the morning. And it's Ash Wednesday. And you know, we're across the street from St. Mary's Catholic Church. And, and that building's really even more across the street from St. Mary's. So there, there are just cars and people just streaming into this area. So, I, so Wednesday morning, I was a little more dressed down, like mesh hat, black coat, running shoes. So with no context, a man in a hat and a black coat just comes walking out with a serrated knife seemingly nowhere, to nowhere except to maybe stab you, walking up the street, and people are getting out of their cars, and, and then I realized how it looks, so then I'm kind of trying to hide the knife, which looks more suspect, and you can't say anything. You can't say like, hey, I'm a pastor next door. I'm really, I'm cutting some, but then you sound crazy, and all that to say, context is important. Context matters. It sheds light on the side of the man with the horror movie knife at 6.50 walking down the street. And I I really feel that, especially this morning looking at this passage, especially if you're visiting or maybe you've been once, is, all right, here's this New Testament letter. We're about halfway through, so we're just jumping in. And this passage that I'm about to read, it just starts talking about ethereal stuff. It starts talking about things like new moons, and the worship of angels, and the spirits of the world. And it can sound so esoteric. I think for somebody reading this for the first time, you feel like, what, what in the world is this talking about? So as best I can, let me set up the context, and then I'm going to read it. And this is the rub, because we're not totally clear about the context. But people have been reading this for a long time, and New Testament scholars have scrutinized it, and, and it seems like the clues point in this direction, that this guy named Epaphras, who's mentioned at the beginning and the end of the letter, uh, heard Paul preach the gospel in Ephesus, in Asia Minor, and he took it to the city of Colossae. And so people heard the gospel, and they became Christians, and a church started. And so I think Paul would say, and we would say, so far, so good. But then after that, these other influences really started to make their way into this little young, fledgling church. And the clues seemed to be that it was one part uh, Judaism, 
which was a lot closer to Christianity in the first century. Uh, especially like Jewish practice, Jewish calendar stuff. That was one part. Mystical stuff. In fact, in one verse, I'll point this out, it seems like maybe a really sort of a particular man, teacher, was teaching things like visions he had seen and how we also like worship angels and not just God. That made it in. Uh, Really rigorous practices of severity to the body. You know, like if you're going to really spiritually thrive, you've got to be hardcore with your body. And and it's this old problem, you know, the, the, the kind of $65 word for it is syncretism. That's an old problem, is, is where instead of Christianity being one thing, it's sort of Jesus, but I also grab from this and I grab from that and I sprinkle this in, and it's just kind of a broth that's a mix. That that was happening in the Colossian church. And I think I've said this every week, but I'll say it again in case this is your first time. Paul wrote this letter from prison. Almost the end of the letter, he says, remember my chains. He's really in prison. And he's never met these people. He just knows about them. He's so thankful for this new church. But he's concerned about what he's hearing about them. So he writes this letter and he gets into this stuff to say this. It's really what he's been saying the whole letter up till now is that you don't need Jesus and a mix of some other great stuff. You need Jesus. Colossians 2, verse 16. Uh, Jonathan preached from the prior passage last week. Greatness of Christ. Everything we need is in Christ. So verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have, indeed, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, these are, these are hard words. The worship of angels and new moons and festivals and a sensuous mind and elemental spirits, and it it may be very daunting and confusing for us to hear this, and we pray, as we pray week after week, that you'll help us right now. And we pray that this won't be a break from worship, this will be part of our worship, is to really listen to you and hear you, and that you would change us by the renewing of our minds. 
and point us to yourself. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, You may or may not have ever heard a name from church history, the name Jerome or St. Jerome. Probably born in the 340s and died apparently in 420. Uh, If you've ever seen a Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate, Jerome translated the the Vulgate from the the other languages into into Latin. But he's what you call a church father. And uh, and some of his writings survive. And in one of his writings, and this is kind of a strange thing to quote, he talks about that he went out in the desert to, to pray. And it's really kind of like a hardcore thing to do. And other Christians did this in the past. There's a whole group of church fathers called the Desert Fathers, people that went out into remote wilderness, desert, to just be alone with God, away from people, and devote themselves to prayer and, and seeking God. Well, Jerome said that he went out in the desert to pray, and he said that I found myself surrounded by dancing women. And actually, I I, I looked and looked for the quote. He may have even said that I found myself surrounded by naked dancing women. I'm not, but but they're dancing women there. In fact, there's actually a painting from the 1600s where somebody had seen this quote, and it's a painting of this like real gaunt man. You know, he's dressed like you'd picture a church father, and he's kind of going like this. And there's this group of women around him, like one's playing the lute, kind of like just laying down a little power chord for him right there. And he's like, no, I came out here to get away from you. But apparently what had happened was he, he had seen dancing women in Rome. And so at great cost to himself, I mean, don't picture like he goes out there with all kinds of gear and cool sorts of you know, solar-powered stuff to blow on you like a fan. And, I mean, he goes out into the desert probably with nothing to be alone with God and to seek Him, which is great. And I found myself surrounded by those women. Because what's the one thing I took out there? I took that heart with me. Um, you know, it's great to take up a discipline to, to move toward God, whether that is I'm going to regularly read Scripture, or it could be I'm actually going to maybe fast for the very first time. I'm going to skip this meal or go without food for a day. That, that, can, that can be a great means for seeking God for who He is. And I'll talk about that more in a second. But nothing has the power to put life into you. And no one has the power to put life into you or actually change you, not just behaviors, change you or me, but Jesus. And again, some of the text this morning is going to seem really foreign and different and removed from our experience. You know, the worship of angels, you know, or elemental spirits. And that that just may not connect with us at all. You know, postmodern people, post-enlightenment, tech people. But the problem of saying, I need Jesus, and just to kind of fortify that, I need to mix in this other thing over here. That's an ancient problem. And, and the terms are unfamiliar, but catch Jesus' uh, catch Paul's point. We need Christ, period, hard stop. So let's look at this. Um, there's a Jesus mix, and there's Jesus. So those are my points, okay? A Jesus mix, and then Jesus. I've already referred to them, but, but let me, let's look at three as far as the mix goes. Let's, let's speak in terms of ritual, mysticism, 
and asceticism. Kind of a clunky word, but the text has it twice, so let's use that term. Uh, Ritual and mysticism and asceticism. Okay, the ritual is at the beginning, verse 16. Paul's just been, he's been lifting Jesus up. There's no one, there's nothing like Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God. Passage last week. So, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, the food and drink part, that might be coming from first century local pagan influences. It could be pagan culture saying, hey, look, 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 if you want your life to go right, if you want things to go right with you and your kids, you eat that food and you don't eat that food. You drink that drink and you don't drink that drink. Almost like a don't step on the crack and break somebody's back. Do it that way, do it the right way and things will go well. But it could have been Jewish too. It could have been the influence of, hey, look, there's Jewish presence all over the world. These are the foods that God's people have always eaten. And they don't eat those foods. This is what we drink, and we don't drink that. The people who believe in Jesus eat that, and they don't eat that. And what does Paul say? When Jesus says all the foods are clean, all the foods are clean. And nothing that goes into you makes you unclean or fixes you. Food and drink is not the issue. And the New Testament says that explicitly. But then it talks about this, and this really this is from the Jewish world. A festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. That trio of terms, festival or feast, new moon, Sabbath, shows up multiple times in the Old Testament. And it seems to be kind of a like a catch-all way of talking about what we would call the ceremonial law of the Jews. Uh, the priesthood, the offerings, the temple worship, the calendar. So feasts yearly, new moon monthly, Sabbath weekly. It's kind of a Tom, Dick, and Harry way to say the Jewish calendar and the Jewish way of life and maybe even the Jewish diet. And what does Paul say? Keeping that day or observing this month in this way cannot change you. It can't save you and it can't grow you. The ritual can. What about mysticism? Verse 18. And I mentioned, you know, this, this seems to sound like there was a, an individual, like a teacher, maybe sort of a, a shaman that, that influenced this church. Verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. We'll talk about that in a second. And worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And what is that talking about? Someone or some group of people were influencing the Colossians to essentially either to say, hey, look, believing in Jesus is great, but there are alternate spiritualities, which actually sounds very contemporary. Or maybe they were saying, Hey, look, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to like do this, don't do this, keep this taboo, or forbid, you know, or stay away from that taboo, or the bad spirits will get you. And Paul says, what, what, why are you even trafficking in that? It's interesting. The verse right before this, passage right before this, it says that Jesus, 
when he died on the cross and rose from the dead, it uses the image of him leading this triumphal procession almost like he's got all the evil spirits as POWs. And Paul says, all right, now what? Are you going to now make these little man-made rules to try to appease them so that they don't trouble your life? Mysticism. Uh, I'll quote Elrond from the Lord of the Rings. Elrond said, and here's the thing. This is a big group of people. It may be that 99% of you would never like dabble in anything like that, but maybe one or two people in this room are sort of fascinated by magic or witchcraft or the spirit realm. And so I'll quote Elrond, who said uh, that it is perilous to study too closely the arts of the enemy for good or for ill. It is perilous to study too deeply the arts of the enemy. Paul would say, agreed. But there's asceticism too. It mentioned it in the verse I just read, but look down in verse, let's go down to verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, those are those spirits, demons, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Do you get what he's saying? Why would you even live your life in terms of, uh, wait, don't do that or don't open the umbrella in the house or you better knock on wood. Why would you do this and touch this or not touch that to try to keep a spirit happy? That is dead to you. You're alive in Christ. You're dead to all that. Why would you still dabble in it? But look at what he says in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of how much value? No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's interesting to be talking about this during Lent. And if you're visiting going, oh crud, here comes the Roman Catholic bashing session. That's, That's not what I'm about to do. It's really to think about this more historically. Uh... Some church traditions make a big deal out of Lent, you know, give or take how it's been done in history. It's a you know, 40-day period leading up to the Holy Week and especially Good Friday and Easter. And so it starts with, currently, Ash Wednesday. You know, I, I'm, I'm robustly Protestant, but I think if somebody said, hey, I, I, I really do want to take this time, this 40 days, Christians are doing this all over the world, I really want to up my time in the Word. I want to up my time in prayer. I want to uh, say no to something that I normally enjoy so that I can focus more on prayer. And there's a real particular sin in my life that's been very difficult for me and I really want to put it more under the microscope and pray that God would change me. Well, it's kind of hard to fault that. I, mean, I would think that, that could be a really great thing. If we understand this, keeping Lent cannot change us. Keeping Christmas cannot change us, as everyone knows by Christmas afternoon, when all the sin finally comes out. This will almost sound heretical. Keeping Easter as a special day, as a special event, as a calendar item, it cannot change you. Fasting can be a way to seek God. Fasting really, I mean, whether that's a meal or a day or two of meals, or alcohol, or whatever form that takes. 
putting something down. And, uh, I heard somebody give this great description of fasting. For the believer, one hand is on this world, and one hand is reaching for the Lord, seated at the Father's right hand. But in fasting, in a sense, you take that second hand off and reach for Him with both hands. I mean, that's what it ought to be. And if that's ever been a, a discipline that you've pursued or you want to pursue, that can be a great thing. But the act of going without food or alcohol or chocolate and praying more, just the doing of it cannot change us. Or we should all just say, fast, 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 and we'll become the people that we ought to be. Christ can change us. You're free to keep Lent or not Lent. You're free to keep Easter or not keep Easter. If we understand that it is the Lord Jesus who not only can save me, but transform me and renew me. If the Lent reference made you nervous, this will make you even more nervous. Uh, An ancient Christian practice, it much older than medieval Catholicism, is crossing yourself. If I understand it correctly, Roman Catholics go your left to your right. Eastern Orthodox go from your right to your left. Probably way more references to that in ancient Christian writings than closing your eyes when you pray. (gasps) You're free to do it. You're free not to do it. If we understand that this cannot change my heart. Christ can change my heart. If this is a physical response to, I love you and I need you, that's great. But I can't change me. And you can't change you. What's the big takeaway? We don't need Jesus mixed in with this other thing to fortify the overall project of my self-improvement. And like I said, worship of angels probably doesn't grab us where we are in our cultural moment, but we have our mixes. What do you think the full package is? What would you want for you and other people? What's the mix? Is it Jesus and conservatism? Or Jesus and socialism? Or Jesus and the optimal house? Or Jesus and optimal fitness? Paul wants people to understand we need Christ, period, hard stop. We need Jesus every minute. Without mix. So let's talk about Jesus. That's the mix. What about... It's a good note to end on. Jesus. Paul, he, he describes him in a couple of ways. First off, that he's the head. And he, he, Paul says this in, in other letters. But verse 19, he's just been talking about the guy that's he's had visions and worship of angels. But he says this, that this person not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, he means the body of Christ, the church, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Jesus Christ is the head, and the people of God, the church, are the body. And understand what he's saying there. It's not just, if you're decapitated, you'll die. That's true. But like, even think about your pituitary gland in your head, in your brain. If the pituitary gland is disconnected, you can't grow in all kinds of ways. Bodily systems that we don't even see. You can't 
grow. And whether Paul knew about that gland or not, he's saying, look, you can't come over here to Jesus and say, hey, I hear that because you died on the cross and you took my place that you can get me into heaven if I believe in you. Is that right? That's right. I believe in you, so now I have eternal life. Now, let me walk over here and just by the power of my will and my disciplines, I'm going to change my behaviors. Do not walk away from him. You need him to enter heaven and you need him to grow every second. And let me be theological because these are Bible words, not just theology words. We need Christ for our justification and we need Christ for our lifelong sanctification. He's the head and he's the substance. Verse 17, and Paul's talking about, don't let somebody come in and mess with you about, don't eat that, or keep that day, or keep that month. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This is such a great metaphor. Those things are shadows. Those are shadow realities. The substance, the real deal is Jesus. Um, Let me do this. Let me jump out of Colossians for just a second and go to the Gospels, but I want to connect it to this. What was Jesus' big first miracle, according to John? John really is clear about this, that this was Jesus' first sign. John chapter 2, Jesus and his family are invited to a wedding. And uh, weddings were just a lot more public, and they went over a longer period of time. And this wedding party ran out of wine. And it's really great. It's a little, it's a little window into Mary and Jesus' relationship. She comes over to him, and I mean, you kind of picture that thing that moms do where they put their hands like this, and she said, they're out of wine. <laughs> and he's sort of firm with her, kind of mysteriously firm with her. And without waving his hands over it or anything like that, he turns these big stone jars, turns the water in these big stone jars into top-shelf wine. And the estimates would be, I don't know exactly, maybe we can't know, but the estimates would be probably at least 600, maybe as much as 900 bottles of of the kind of bottles of wine that we have. So, So picture two really... High-end wines, glug, 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 into a container. Do that 300 more times. Just, and sometimes if, uh, if we have these pitchers with, with uh, our communion wine, if the napkin's over it a little bit where it can breathe, the first two rows can smell the communion wine from where they're sitting. Okay, the smell of these jars must have been unbelievable. And if you've ever read the story, it says that the guy that's kind of the master of ceremonies, he has the groom come over and goes, in Greek it says, you crushed it. Because everyone at this point would have served the great wine, and then when people got a buzz, they would have served the, you know, kind of cheaper wine. And you, this, you've, you've saved the incredible wine until now. What's funny is what's not recorded is the groom's response, who doesn't know how any of this happens. Just like, uh, yeah, it's, that's just how we roll, you know, that's how... <laughs> But I want you to picture the experience of the guest who comes in, and, and there are these jars. You would kind of know what to do. You'd walk in, and 
the jars are there maybe by the entrance and you're supposed to come over. And now this is the first century. They don't think in terms of microbes and germs. It's ceremonial. You know, be, be clean. Don't be like the Gentiles. Be clean before you handle food and drink and you're with other Jews. And picture the experience of the person who walks in and they're just about to grab the water and they... That's wine. And what... It, okay, this is a sign. What is Jesus signifying? You're not going to clean yourself. I'm here now. And you're not going to have inexpensive wine. I'm here now. And I'm going to set up this couple, but I'm going to make more wine than this whole village can drink because I'm here now. Because he's the real thing. He's the one to whom all the feasts, all the marriages, all the celebration point. And Paul is saying... Don't meet the substance and then walk back over to shadows. Christ is the substance. Why does He keep putting feasts in His parables? Because they all point to Him. Man, we need Him. For life, for joy, for transformation, for hope, to get up, no event or calendar item or severity or fasting can put that in you. That comes from Jesus. But let me, let me end with this. Uh, you know, studying this passage this week, and, and it says that, that uh, these things like feasts and new moons and Sabbaths, those are shadows. It's funny, I thought, I've read this passage a bunch of times. I thought it said those are shadows of Jesus. What it says is they're shadows of things to come. And you know how shadows work? That They're shaped like the thing that cast them. I have bad posture, and I shouldn't draw attention to it while I'm standing up here. But I, I pitch my head forward, and I have slinky posture and hunchback posture. And sometimes I'll look down, and my shadow is shaped like that. And I can't get mad at the shadows because I cast it. So it's a slinky shadow because I have slinky posture. Jesus says, I mean, Paul says, Why were these events like they were? They were a shadow that's cast from our future. So what's a new moon like? And uh, I I got down. This is a reference work from my study. This is not like light devotional reading. And I looked up uh, new moon, didn't know much about it. And I'm going to read like three sentences. It says this. The new moon observance was similar to that of a Sabbath but with a greater note of festive joy. There was to be no mourning or fasting on this day. Like the Sabbath, it was a day of rest from ordinary work. The various offerings prescribed for the new moon suggest that at least during one period in Israel's history, the new moon was a higher day than the Sabbath. As on any other feast day, God was thought to be especially near on the new moon. And if that's, the sh- that would be pretty great. But if that's a shadow, what does that mean? You know, I think for an, a, a devout Israelite, a new moon must have felt like what people who love going to midnight mass on Christmas Eve, you know, it's once a year, 
and the kids are asleep, and it's sacred, and it's beautiful, and it's special, and it's dark, but there's light. For a devout Israelite, the new moon must have felt like that combined with how children feel about snow days. And Paul says that's a shadow. And it's cast from the things to come. Well, what does that matter? You know why that matters? Because the very next thing that Paul's going to say is, set your mind on heaven. Where Christ is seated at the Father's right hand, take your mind off earthly things and think on Him and think what is to come. What is the takeaway this morning? We need Christ. And He is there for the taking. And if we don't have Him, we have nothing. If we have Him, we have every spiritual blessing in Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts and you know that all of us are tempted to mix something else in to fortify what we think is our spiritual portfolio. And we pray that you would expose these to us and you'd root them out and our portfolio would be Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And pray for the person that's here and has never yet married Jesus. Maybe they've been on a date or they've talked. They've never held fast to Him. That you would give that person faith even this morning. And we pray this in His name. Amen.